let's return to a state that once existed where people were much more content with what they had. Now, I don't want to return to that state because people were horribly exploited. But can we have the benefits that have come from this extraordinary period of capitalism and 200 years of entrepreneurship and continue to develop ideas and innovate without growth and the consequences of that growth leading to the destruction of our environment, including climate change and the enormous social stresses that are incurred and have, so to speak, our cake and eat it too. I think the only way to do that is if there is some major cultural global shift. So it needs, I know this sounds really flaky, a charismatic figure. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you. Hear their struggles. And then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Our environmental behavior as a species and growth as a species is more predictable than you'd think. This recording is longer than most because Jeffrey West is an accomplished physicist and has moved into biology and other sciences. He's written popular stuff, so it's accessible material. I find what Jeffrey talks about aesthetically beautiful in that it combines biology, sociology, cities, math, and beyond individual fields, it takes data from all over the world, and he ties it all together with a physicist's perspective. As you know, I have a PhD in physics, so that perspective is very interesting to me, but more important, relevant to our times. Nonetheless, he describes it simply and therefore accessible to the layperson. His research critically applies to our modern situation, with data coming from all over the world As best I can tell, it's distinct from the usual measurements for global warming and other types of environmental things, so it's not subject to the same systematic biases. And about an hour through, you'll find his academic research led to the same conclusions that my life research did, the importance of leadership. Interestingly, he was similarly influenced by Donald Trump. At the end, when everything ties together, you'll hear why I find it so incredibly rewarding and motivational for me, and I hope you, to lead and not just hope for the best from existing systems. Hello, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is the Leadership in the Environment podcast. I'm here with Jeffrey West. Jeffrey, how are you? Fine, thank you, Joshua. Thanks for having me on. Glad to have you here. And I guess now we've talked a whole bunch of times. I guess I probably heard of you before, but I first heard you speaking on the Sam Harris podcast. You began as a theoretical physicist, trained in Cambridge, went to Stanford. You are at the Santa Fe Institute where you're a professor, former president. Now people are thinking, oh, this is going to be kind of heady stuff. But you've also written a book on a lot of your work that you've taken the physicist perspective and applied it in lots of other areas, in particular nature and animals, biology, cities. And you've talked with Ted. You've been on, I think you've been on Nova. So to anyone listening, first, I believe this is going to be a great conversation. And if you look him up and watch his stuff and read his things, it's very accessible. So even though you've had all this training, you make your writing and your speaking very accessible. Thank you. Your book is about a year old now. Maybe you can mention- My book came out about a year ago. It's now in paperback. 
And uh, what can I say? It summarizes a lot of work I've been involved in since joining the Santa Fe Institute and turning my attention away from what I spent most of my career doing, which was high energy physics, meaning, you know, quarks and gluons, fundamental laws of nature, dark matter, and so on, you know, evolution of the universe, all these marvelous questions. That's what got me into physics, yeah. Yeah, no, it's wonderful, wonderful stuff. But, uh, you know, so asking big questions about the basic constituents of matter and the fundamental laws, and going, in a certain sense, to the complete other end of the spectrum, dealing with, how should I put it, sort of the messiness that is on the surface of this planet, namely, you know, mostly life, mm-hmm. and trying to understand uh, within the same paradigmatic perspective, the lens of physics, sort of much of the world around us, everything from how life works, how it scales in particular, that was the, the technical lens I used, the idea of scaling, which maybe we can talk about shortly, but things about life from the microscopic all the way to the macroscopic, including ecosystems, but then into something that I began to realize was more and more important and even profound, and that is to understand social organizations, in particular cities, and as a corollary to that, companies, but in particular realizing that the fate of the planet, meaning the fate of human beings and our socioeconomic lives, Mm -hmm. are completely intertwined with what happens with our cities. Because cities have begun to dominate the planet in the last uh, couple of hundred years. Let me just give a couple of statistics. We've gone from being, for example, in the United States, 200 years ago, we were just a few percent urbanized, which is typical of now developed countries. But now typical of a developed country, such as the US, is that we're over 80% urbanized. Most of us live in urban environments. The globe as a whole, past the halfway point where more than 50% of people are urbanized just a few years ago and is headed towards this 70-80% level. And all of the problem, here's the really important point, not just that all the people are living in cities and that building those cities is putting a huge stress and strain on resources and energy, but all the problems that we face, the tsunami of problems that we face from climate change and the destruction of the environment, including pollution and so on, but also questions of health, crime, questions of stability of markets, how do we understand risk, what is the long-term sustainability of the planet, all have their origins in the growth of cities, the phenomenon of urbanization, and how that's going to play itself out. So that I didn't realize, frankly, when I started to get into this, but as I did, I began to realize the enormity of the question got me passionately involved, not just in understanding cities, but using that as a platform to start to ask about this deep question of long-term sustainability of the planet itself in terms of our role on the planet. Now, I want to get a little more detail on the scaling things that you talked about. And I want to frame things, what you just talked about, and I think what you're going to talk about, as this is a view that physicists have. I mean, scientists in general, but I think the physicist perspective brings something new that I think is incredibly valuable. (laughs) I mean, I have a physics background. Historically, there's a few physicists who have left physics or done things outside. I think of Schrodinger as one of the big ones who predicted a lot of properties of DNA long before anyone found DNA. And then it was, I think, Crick out of Crick and Watson came from physics. 
Richard Feynman did lots of things. And the way I look at it in my head is these great physicists left physics and destroyed other fields <laughs> I mean, in a playful way. Uh, yes. I'm not uh, sure I'd use that same phraseology, but I understand what you mean. I guess in the way that um, entrepreneurship, they talk about creative destruction. It's kind of that way. It's they came in and did things that no one else thought that way. And then they came in and with this, not simplistic, but they saw the simplicity in something and drew something out. And I believe that I'm doing something like that in leadership and possibly in the environment. So you've become a role model for me. And also for everybody listening who is not familiar with physics, I think that I want to frame what they're going to hear from you now about what you've done. I hope that we'll also apply that. I think it'll just transition into talking about the environment and what we do about it. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. You know, it's sort of interesting in a way because physics concerns itself with what you might even call simple systems. I mean, that is um, things that are amenable to analysis. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to do physics. We use uh, the language of mathematics to uh, not just describe them, but to understand them in a very deep way and understand sort of the nature of physical reality, so to speak. And it has proven to be extraordinarily powerful and uh, has laid the groundwork for the kind of scientific technological society we live in. I mean, what we're doing now could not take place, obviously, unless someone had understood the fundamental laws of electromagnetism and Newton's laws of motion and all the rest. Because one of the great achievements of science was the absolutely remarkable prediction by James Clark Maxwell in the middle of the 19th century that uh, by trying to understand electricity and magnetism, he predicted the existence of electromagnetic waves. Mm -hmm. uh, that has so revolutionized our lives. At a constant speed, no less. And to recognize this, there's this huge spectrum of electromagnetic radiation. And this is one piece of it, of radio waves and bouncing things off satellites and so forth. But this is extraordinary. But we could call those kinds of systems simple, even though they're extremely complicated. I mean, they're extremely complicated. <laughs> but the point, I want to use the word simple, and I want to just discuss this briefly as before we sort of get into the meat of this, because simple in this context means that we can write down a few equations or even an algorithm and make predictions, understand and make predictions. And that is sort of the nature of physics. And that's a sort of way of thinking. And integral to that is also the search for generic underlying principles that transcend individual systems so that there's a kind of universality, something that uh, pervades everything like Newton's laws. Newton's laws, you know, is uh, acts on us when we walk or when we jump, but it also is uh, the laws that um, govern the motion of planets around the sun or those very satellites which we're using now to bounce signals off so we can talk to one another. Mm -hmm. As well as planets around some star, around some distant galaxy, billions of light years away. Yeah, exactly. So these things permeate the entire universe, these laws. And that's why physicists have coined the phrase universal, even though sometimes it may mean maybe not for the entire universe, but it has that sense that it uh, transcends a tremendous range of phenomena, which superficially may seem not connected. I think this is very important. And this is a way of thinking. Now, the world around us, you know, if I look out the window and I see these trees and the whole ecosystem out there, and I can look down on the city of Santa Fe, there's houses and there's traffic and there's people living their lives. It's very hard in that to see where there's any regularity or systematic behavior. We have this image that uh, each city has its own individuality, is unique, and that each 
organism is unique. And indeed, we're supported in that to some extent by a sort of naive view of natural selection, evolution by natural selection, because that says that um, there's this kind of um, evolutionary history that where a lot of accidental things happen, a lot of interaction with the environment and with other species, and that's how each species evolved by interaction. And what we've ended up with is somewhat arbitrary and capricious. So the idea that if you started over again, it would look quite different, maybe. But there's this idea that each species is quite special, and uh, there's this kind of this random behavior out there, and that's what natural selection is about those, the survival of the fittest that can deal with that continuously changing environment. From that viewpoint, it's very hard to see regularity. And in particular, if you did the following kind of thought experiment, if you made various measurements on organisms, you know, how much energy they need, how much food they need, what their various aspects of their physiology or their life history, meaning, you know, how long they lived, how long they have the rate at which they grow, how many offspring they had, but anything that you could measure about them when you plotted those on a graph versus the size of the organism, beginning with very small things and going up to very big things. Now, that's not necessarily a natural question to ask. No, that's a physicist question yeah. to ask. That's exactly a physicist kind of question to ask. How do things change when you think of some variable or characteristic that you know does change, but you see how one depends on the other, or ask, does one systematically depend upon the other? And it, there's no reason to suspect one way or the other before measuring. Yeah. No, a priori, I know, absolutely. So in that sense, the physics is first and foremost an experimental and observational science, and it's very much data-driven. You have to have data, you have to make measurements, and it is fundamentally quantitative, mm -hmm. which means, if it's quantitative, that the natural language to describe things is mathematics, because mm -hmm. mathematics is the symbolic language for being quantitative. So if you made this plot of these various characteristics versus size, and you have this idea of randomness in natural selection and historical contingency, not just of every organism, but every component of an organism, every organ, every cell type, every genome, and you plotted that, mm -hmm. you would expect to see points sort of randomly all over the piece of graph paper. Okay. So actually, to get it more precise, so say we wanted to look at energy expenditure. You might say elephants use a ton of energy and maybe blue whales are in the ocean, so maybe they don't use that much. And maybe mice use a lot because they run around so much, but maybe sloths don't. And so you'd think, wouldn't expect a pattern. Yeah, right? all of those because they are adapted to their environment. Mm -hmm. And they've had this long history of adaptation to get to where they are. And it's unique. So random environments, you'd expect random... Ran so you'd expect random behavior. So that would be the naive view. That, that's the extreme naive view. So you would expect these points to be sort of... There might be some clustering and so on, but mostly it would be all over the maps kind of thing. So when you actually go out and measure things, you actually look at real data, you find something that's exactly the opposite that in fact, if you make a measurement, and that would be very specific, if you measure something called metabolic rate, which is technically the amount of energy an organism needs per second to stay alive. That's roughly speaking, that's the amount of food it needs to stay alive. So for us, that number, if you look on your, I don't know, 
box of muesli or somewhere for your yogurt, it'll tell you it's almost 2,000 food calories a day. That's what you need to stay alive. So the athletes out there know it's the TDEE, total daily energy expenditure, something like that, Yeah, yeah, in different units. So that energy is about 2,000 food calories a day. And I want to come back to that number in a little bit. That number is 2,000 food calories for us. Of course, it's a different number for all the different animals. If you plot that versus the size of the animals, as you start, say, all mammals, this is like mammals, and you start with a shrew, and then you do a mouse, and then you do a rat, then you do a cat and a dog, and then um, maybe... Um, Chimpanzee. And then a human being, and uh, so on, up to a giraffe, elephant, and up to the blue whale. So you have this huge spectrum of animals going over a range of size, by the way, of about 100 million. A whale, blue whale, is about 100 million times more massive than a shrew. And that's mm-hmm. the range that we as mammals cover. And you plot that, what you find, instead of some random bunch of points on a graph, you find they all line up on a, stri- on a line. They all line up on a single line. Okay. And that line has a very simple mathematical form. And I'm going to say what that is technically, I think, and then I'm going to try to explain it in English. So mathematically, what we say is, is that uh, that line follows something that's called a power law. And the power law has an exponent three quarters. So that's the word. So anyone that's had some mathematics will understand what I said, but probably most of your listeners won't. So let me try to explain in English what that means or what that implies. So what it means is the following. There are two ways I'm going to do it. First, if you look at two animals of different sizes, and you take their ratio of masses, what it says is you can determine the metabolic rate of one relative to the other by taking that ratio of masses and doing the following Byzantine operation on it. You take that number, you cube it, and then you take the square root twice. Mm-hmm. That's what that three quarters meant. Okay. Pretty weird. It sounds like some medieval alchemical formula. But amazingly, that will tell you, roughly speaking, what the metabolic rate of any animal, and by extension, essentially any organism is on the planet. That's pretty amazing. So and that's so- a very weird operation. Yes. It's not the sort of thing you'd expect. It's not no. the sort of thing you'd <laughs> automatically do. It begs the question, if that's the right way to say it, begs the question of why three quarters? Yes. There must be something going on. When you see order, it's possible it's just coincidence, but it seems unlikely. So it could be diabolical coincidence. And then what can we predict with that? What's causing it? What do we predict with it? What else is like this? So the first point I want to reemphasize is it's absolutely remarkable that there's any regularity. Mm-hmm. Here we see this fantastic regularity, and it represents some relatively simple but slightly Byzantine-sounding operation that you have. And is it, you said organisms, so lizards and birds. Yes, within themselves, within their own taxonomic group. Mm-hmm. So if you take all birds and you do the same kind of thing, it follows the same formula. If you take all fish, uh-huh. same formula. Take all plants, including all trees. Oh, plants too, okay. Yeah. Mushrooms. You go from probably, my, I don't know about mushrooms. I don't know if data has been taken. Probably yes, because it's true of insects, crustacea, you name it. All right. have the same weird formula. So let me explain again another way of, of stating it. And that is that if you double the size of an organism, or put it slightly differently, if you look at an organism that's twice the weight of another organism, mm-hmm. so there's twice as many cells, roughly speaking, 
you would naively have expected that the metabolic rate, how much energy is needed, would be twice as much because there's twice as many cells, twice as many customers, so to speak. That's if it was linear, but not a power law. And that's linear. That would be linear. And that's the sort of simple way usually we think about things. But in fact, what that scaling law with this magic three quarters in it says is, no, you don't need twice as much. You only need 75% as much, three quarters as much, roughly speaking. You save 25% in the amount of energy or food intake every time you double. So that is whether you double from two grams to four grams, 20 kilograms to 40 kilograms, or 200 kilograms to 400. doesn't matter. Every time you double, you keep saving. So animals keep getting more and more efficient, exactly. at least in this one measure. Therefore, the bigger the animal, the more efficient. That's called an economy of scale. Mm -hmm. So also, to put it slightly differently, that our cells have to work harder than our horse's cells because the horse is more, is more efficient, it's bigger, more efficient. But our cells are more efficient and have to do less work and need less energy than our dogs or our cats mm -hmm. in a systematic, predictable way, in this kind of average sense. You know, this is... Uh, so chihuahuas and Great Danes, there's going to be some... Yeah, so there is that. That's a whole separate... But the question of dogs, dogs and in general domestic animals are a special case. Can I guess at this... Please do. I would guess three quarters somehow we arrive at through some evolutionary process limiting from above and below. And then we're in the dogs, we're engineering in some different way that's not following the same process. Well, dog has evolved by natural selection. Before we started breeding. <laughs> the breeding of dogs, we've genetically manipulated, not by natural selection. So that, even though a dog may have, and I'm going to come to this in a minute as to the origin of these scaling laws, they may have evolved to be efficient and therefore in some sense optimal. When you've bred small dogs or big dogs, you violated that because you breed a dog to run extremely fast, like a greyhound, but that dog has to give up something to do that. And most likely it gives up its lifespan, lives, doesn't live as long. Or you breed a dog to cuddle up to you in the, in the armchair, a very tiny dog, and it also has given up. So you, you've allocated resources to different things which have not evolved in order to optimize by some process analogous to the survival of the fittest. And that's true of, of all domestic animals. And in fact, the dog, what's considered the proto-dog. The average dog? The, well, no, the, or it could be. It actually is the average dog, yep. roughly. But the proto-dog, the dog from which all modern dogs have evolved, if you look at its size and you, we think we know it's uh, roughly speaking, its metabolic rate, it is what it should be. So the average dog, the average dog size, which is maybe, I don't know, the size of a spaniel or something, maybe with not all that hair and not looking quite so cute, its metabolic rate is roughly speaking what it should be. But not of a chihuahua and not of a great day. They're all off the scale. They're screwed up. They're not on this some sort of efficient frontier. Yeah. So let me go back, though, uh, use that as a point of departure uh, about uh, the origin of these scaling laws. Oh, but first, I have to say something else. So we've just talked about metabolic rate. But here's what's extraordinary, that if you look at any physiological variable, so ones that I mentioned like heart rate or the length of your aorta, the first tube that comes out of your heart, or... Um, the length of the femur. Or the, the femur, yeah, the length of some bone. But anything that you can think of that is measurable. Or a life history event that I mentioned before, 
lifespan, time to maturity, uh, growth rate, and so on. All of these, and we could, uh, you know, there's probably a list of 25, 30 of these things, maybe more, all follow the same kind of systematic behavior with this one quarter permeating through all of them. Did you find this all yourself or was some of this lingering around before you? No, no. So I got extremely interested in this problem back in the 90s uh, because I had become very interested for all kinds of morbid reasons in uh, mortality. I became very, I was very interested in death. I've always been interested in death and mortality, why we die and I had, uh, and why we age. And at that time, I was very conscious of my own aging. I was in my 50s. And uh, it just so happens, I come from a family of short-lived males. Uh I was already, I think when I started thinking about this, maybe in my mid-50s, and my male antecedents usually die by the time they're six, before 60, uh, or early. My father died at 61, his father at 57, my uncles died in their 50s, and so on. All from different things, by the way, which is kind of weird, but we're sort of a crappy design, I guess, in some way. We have these fatal flaws. So I sort of assumed that naturally, obviously, that um, maybe I only had five to 10 years to live, And I became kind of intrigued by what was the process. What are the processes that had been going on in me that meant that I, you know, um, I wasn't quite, uh, you know, I couldn't do the same kind of things I could do physically, especially when I was 25. And here I was at 55, et cetera, et cetera. Why was I beginning to go gray? And so all the usual aspects of, of my face was beginning to lie. And in so doing... I came across this body of work that had been developed by biologists in the early middle part of the century, especially from the 1930s through to the 1950s. And uh, it had become a, a very significant area of biology. And it goes under the name of allometry. That's its name. It's scaling. It's the kind of things we just talked about. How do characteristics and traits of organisms change with size? That's called allometry and a coined term by uh, Julian Huxley. And as I say, it had begun in the 30s. And this scaling law for metabolic rate that we discussed a few minutes ago was first enunciated and discovered in the data by a man named Max Kleiber, who was a, a biologist at what is now called uh, University of California at Davis, it was an agricultural school at that time. And he discovered this. And since then, a great deal of work had been done and had elucidated many of these laws. And fortunately for me, in the early eight, so, so this was stuff that many people, many very distinguished biologists had wondered about, pondered about, but there was no theory. But then in the Beginning in the uh, late 40s, 50s, we had the molecular revolution in biology, the discovery of DNA, and then the whole paradigm shifted. It shifted from the emphasis being on organismic biology to saying everything is now derivable from molecules, and in particular from genes. And, that's, and, and that paradigm still exists, of course. I mean, it permeates biology now, but it it wiped out this deep interest in these bigger picture kinds of uh, things. Scaling and so it was sitting there waiting for you. But in, in general, thinking bigger picture, you know, thinking more systemically, more holistically uh-huh. about life and biology, 
reducing it to molecules and by extension to genes. And uh, with the idea implicit that, you know, if you understand the behavior of complex molecules, and in particular, the structure of genes, and ultimately what developed many years later, uh, in the 90s and so on, if we can really map the human genome, punked, we're finished. We understand everything, you know, we'll understand all diseases, we'll, you know, we'll all live happily ever after. A completely ridiculous idea, <laughs> by the way. Obviously. Yeah, there's emergent things. No, it's brilliant work. All that stuff is brilliant and wonderful. But this implicit idea that that's all you needed to do, which was actually explicit, almost explicitly stated in the Human Genome Project, was clearly... Um, it's missing all the boundary conditions of the exterior world. That are- well, yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, but the, the fa- and the fact is what it was leaving out is the whole concept of what this institute that I'm at, the Santa Fe Institute, is all about and sort of invented as a science, and that is the science of complex adaptive systems. And one of the fundamental aspects of that is the observation, the critical observation, that there are systems, and in fact, almost all the systems around us that we interact with, where the whole is not the sum of its parts. You are not the sum of all yourselves or all your genes. A city is not the sum of all the people that live in it or all the roads or all the buildings. It's much more than that. It's a thing of itself, an em- what we call an emergent property. Yeah, and I think the example that I always think of is if you can watch individual ants all day and you'll never predict an anthill no. coming out of it. And no ant has any idea that what it's doing is building the anthill. Just as there you are in New York, Joshua, here I am, Jeffrey, in Santa Fe. We're made of all our cells. None of our cells has any idea of what we're doing. And this system's perspective is so missing from, okay, I can't help but comment that it's so missing from people looking at the environment, but I'm getting ahead of ourselves. So the envi- exactly, we'll come to that, and that's a critical point. But it's missing from this reductionistic paradigm. And I don't in any way want to decry <laughs> all the wonderful work that is done. I mean, that, we have to do all that stuff. That's crucial to understand it at the constituent fundamental level. My God, I spent most of my career doing that in the physical world, yeah. trying to explain quarks and gluons and string theory and protons and neutrons and all the rest of that stuff. It's wonderful. It's critically important. But we also need to understand what the whole is doing and what the system is doing. And especially, it's become critically important, and we are jumping ahead in terms of dealing with the multiple problems that we face in the 21st century on the planet, including especially concerning ecological surroundings and the environment. I want to see if, if we can get to that part, because you talked about these set scaling laws, and why don't I just let you go? Let me just go back a moment to try to say a few words about where they come from. Scaling laws, uh-huh. because I think that's crucially important when we come to the more societal questions of cities, company, well, companies we don't have to deal with, with cities and sustainability and the environment. Okay. So let me just talk a little bit about that. So we have these incredible scaling laws that seem to constrain the <coughs> biological world around us, and they're dominated by this curious number one quarter, number four. Where in the hell do these things come from? How is it? that you yourself were surprised when I said they also apply to plants and trees. So isn't that remarkable that the same scaling laws, so for example, not I said we talked about that in the context of metabolic rate, but tree trunks scale in the same way 
as a, our, the aortas of our circulatory system. Yeah, so now there's no way you can look at this and not think there's got to be something underneath this. There has to be something that's Careers to be made that's in science. very generic and very universal driving it. And of course, the other side to it, there's almost a spiritual side where you see that it's bringing together the unity of nature, that mm-hmm. all of these things are somehow interconnected and are obeying similar laws. Uh, yeah, there's an aesthetic pleasure that comes from this that is at the root of science for me. Yeah. Exactly. And I think so. And that's what many of us get our kicks from, of course. Yeah. You know, nothing more exciting than that. So the question is, what is it? So that uh, where we have these very different evolved designs, plants, trees, human beings, uh, insects, and so on, they, uh, you know, they're uh, very different. And yet they satisfy the same scaling laws. And uh, what you realize is that we are the uh, complex adaptive systems made up of many cells. We have in our bodies roughly 10 trillion cells, 10 to the 14 cells. And they have to be sustained, they have to be serviced in roughly speaking, kind of efficient, democratic fashion, roughly speaking. And the way that problem has been solved by evolution is almost obvious. It has evolved a bunch of networks that distribute energy, resources, and information throughout the body to those cells. And, to the, and then within cells, there are networks within cells that, of course, do likewise within cells to the various components of cells. And the idea is that these scaling laws are a reflection of the underlying principles that govern the mathematics and physics of these networks. And so these networks have generic properties. I can't help but think, so these networks are similar to the networks that you have in distributing goods and services throughout a city or throughout a market. And suddenly what people did in biology is going to apply in other areas. And it was waiting for physicists to do to make that connection. Am I getting it? Yes. Yes, I think so. I hope so. Yes. So it is that. And we'll come to that in a minute. So it's that idea. So when you think of yourself, so from this Viewing it through this lens, you see an organism as a bunch of networks that we are, we're cells, of course, but we're actually a bunch of networks feeding those cells. We're a bunch of, you know, we're a circulatory system, a respiratory system, a renal system, a neural system, even our bones are a network. And all of these are there to support the totality of that, the system, the holistic system, which is the organism. So the idea is that, uh, It is the universal laws governing network, which have to be put into mathematics, that eventually give rise to the scaling laws, and in particular, from which you can derive the one quarter in general, and the three quarters in particular, for example, for metabolic rate. And the kind of generic universalities of the network are things that are, well, the first one is sort of obvious in a way that has very profound consequences. And that is that, and I'm going to say it first technically, the network has to be space-filling, meaning it has to go everywhere. The endpoints of the network have to end up feeding all of the cells of your body. Okay, mm-hmm. Every cell has to be fed by the end of your circulatory system. Of course, it's fed by the capillary. Capillary goes by and, and blood diffuses from the capillary to the cell. So this network has to contort itself so that every cell is fed. That's called space filling. Another universal principle, and that, of course, you see is independent of the specific design. That's just a general property. Another one, which is a general property, is the following, that we want to translate 
the ideas inherent in traditional natural selection, uh, Darwinian natural selection, into mathematics in the following way. That the implicit continuous feedback mechanisms implied in natural selection, the survival of the fittest, in quotes, where there's those that can take advantage of some optimization of something that has evolved, gain something, and they gain fitness, fitness being the ability to produce offspring and pass on your genes, gets translated in this language, in the network language, into the idea that these networks are in some sense optimized. So let me give you a specific example. Let's go back to our circulatory system. So the idea is the circulatory system that we have, we meaning not just you and me, and not just every human being, And not just every human being that's ever lived, but every mammal that has ever existed, the one that we all share is the one that minimizes the amount of energy our hearts have to do to pump blood through the circulatory system in order to feed cells by delivering oxygen and other nutrients to them. And the idea is you want to minimize that energy, which is the amount of energy needed to stay alive, to sustain the system, so that you can allocate the maximal amount of energy to having sex and reproduction and rearing offspring. Darwinian, to maximize Darwinian, what's called Darwinian fitness, passing on genes, you want to minimize the amount of energy that you devote to staying alive. You want to, in that sense, minimize the amount of metabolic energy devoted to that. And so you have to put that into mathematics. So you put that into mathematics that no matter what change you make, there's a network, there's a kind of idealized network that if you made any significant change to it, you'd have to do more work to deliver blood. So the the idea is you want to optimize the network. And it turns out when you do that, all these scaling laws pop out. You can derive mathematically from those kinds of generic principles governing the network all of these scaling laws and the origin of the number one quarter, the number four. And I will, let me just say one or two words about that very quickly. The number four is actually got two components. It's actually not four, it's three plus one. Three coming from space filling because you have to fill a space that's three dimensional Uh because it's up, down and sideways. And the plus one comes from something that is to do with the optimization because when you optimize these networks, it turns out, They have to approximate what's called a fractal-like structure, self-similar structure, meaning everybody's familiar with looking at a big tree and realizing that if you cut a little branch out of it, put it aside, it looks like a scaled-down version of the original tree. Mm -hmm. And you can do that for any branch. It looks like a piece of the, you know, just a scaled version of the tree. That's called self-similar or fractal. And that's where the one comes from. And the one comes from a magic property of fractals that they add an effective dimension. So it's the three dimensions of space plus one coming from the optimization of giving rise to fractality. So it's three plus one, which is four. So if we happen to live in seven dimensions, the number wouldn't have been four, it would have been eight. And animals would be, they'd still be more efficient with size, but not quite. No, but anyway, so that's the idea. And all of the scaling laws that we talked about and alluded to drop out from this and much, much more. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. 
Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. And so now here you are and you have these scaling laws. You know why they come about. And then you start, I think the next step is you're going to look at other things and say, now I can predict scaling laws for other things with networks in them. Exactly. So that was exactly the idea. There are two directions. One is that one, which we're going to talk about in a moment. The other is just to look at various other aspects of life, like growth. Can we understand growth this way? And in particular, can we understand why it is that we grow quickly when we're young and then we stop? And it turns out that the network does it for you. You do the calculations, you automatically stop, and you can predict growth curves of any organism. So that's the kind of thing you can do. But one of the aspects of the life around us in terms of our socioeconomic life is that unlike us, we believe in open-ended growth in our economics, in our finance. And that plays into sustainability. And the question is, what is the relationship between this open-ended growth, which we do we never see in biology, to the bounded growth that we do see in biology, in which we all live. That's how well, life. A lot of people want to see open-ended growth economics. Yes. But there have been plenty of societies that don't exist anymore where it did not grow forever. So, Carl, I wanted to come back to that, but that got me into this thinking exactly what you said. We have this now, this conceptual framework based on networks and scaling laws. Uh, where else can we apply? And the obvious one was to look at cities. And then that leads to economic systems and sustainability. So the first thing, first question was, look, um, one of the things that uh, what we've learned in biology is that despite appearances, and a whale may live in the ocean and an elephant has a trunk and a giraffe a long neck and we walk on two feet and a mouse scurries around, and despite our different environmental and ecological histories, uh, we're actually at the 18, 90% level scaled versions of one another. We are, in fact, in terms of everything you measure about us, essentially scaled down versions of a whale. That's amazing. Humbling as well. We think we're so special. Yes. And And we will talk about the speciality because we're obviously now a little bit different. Much less special than we thought. Yes. When we were hunter-gatherers, which is only 10,000 years ago, we were just like that. We were biological and we've emerged from that. And that's the segue into understanding community structure, collective behavior in cities. And so one of the first question you ask is, despite appearances, is New York just a scaled up Los Angeles, which is a scaled up Chicago, which is a scaled up Cleveland, which is a scaled up Santa Fe, even though they have different histories, geographies, and cultures. And the only way you can answer that is you have to gather all the data of the various characteristics of cities and uh, plot them as we did for organisms versus their size. And size for a city, we took to mean their population. So how does, you know, the length of all the roads, the number of gas stations, the number of patents produced, the number of AIDS cases, the number of restaurants, how do all these change as they change cities from a tiny city like Santa Fe, which is less than 100,000 people, all the way up through... Now, the only, way you could, the only way you could say this is that it does scale. It must. Of course. But it's going to scale differently because yes. they're not three-dimensional. That's one thing. It does seem like the networks are going to be space-filling because you got to get the ambulances going to everyone. So I'm going to guess it scales up two plus one. That's uh, what you would naively guess. Yeah. That's because you're forgetting something fundamental about cities. So if 
cities were just physical. If they were just really a super organism, they were a great big whale. New York was actually a great big whale in some way. Uh, indeed, they would be primarily two-dimensional. So instead of four, you would get three. Indeed, you're completely correct. But a city, one of the things one begins to realize as one starts to study cities is that, of course, when you bring up the word city, you immediately do think of its physicality. You think of the skyscrapers of New York, boulevards of Paris, and the Eiffel Tower, and so on. You, you think of the buildings and the roads and so on. But that is actually <laughs> what you quickly discover is actually the least interesting part of the city because the city is the people. And there's another network which is much more powerful that is going on, and that's the social network. Okay. That is a city. And the way of thinking about a city is that the city is this extraordinary machine the most extraordinary machine we have invented, most sophisticated machine we have invented in order to facilitate human interaction. In order... So the dimensionality of human interaction... So that's the point. That changes. Higher or lower? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I would guess it's going to be higher. Yeah. But I don't know why. So I'm going to tell you why. Okay. So first, before answering that question, I want to just tell you how cities scale. And then we'll come back to that very question. So if you look just at infrastructure, if you just think of the physicality of the city, it mathematically, it scales just like biology. And in spirit, it does. It expresses an economy of scale. In biology, the bigger you are, the less energy you need per cell, okay? Given by this 25% rule. In cities, you need less infrastructure per capita, less gas stations, you double the size of the city, you don't need twice as many gas stations, turns out you need 85%. So one-sixth less. So it's five dimensions. Sort of, five or six dimensions. So that's an interesting question of itself, but it does behave in spirit like biology. There's a systematic savings every time. You... So New York is the most efficient city in the United States, the biggest city. And then Tokyo is going to be yet more efficient. You have less, you need less infrastructure to do the same sorts of things in New York than you do in Cleveland or Santa Fe. In a systematic, predictable way. And what is even more amazing is that's true of, I said, gas stations. It's true of the roads. It's true of the electrical lines, the gas lines. Subway stations. and Water lines, whatever, whatever you want to look at. So if, if energy per person is all that matters, then we're going to keep getting bigger and bigger cities. It's probably not all that matters. It's good to be big. I mean, you know, without any judgment, no question about judgment and lifestyle, collectively for human beings, good to be in a collective, connected, communal environment, which we call a city. And that's now, if you say collectively, you're implying, or I'm inferring that per person, it's maybe getting more stressful. That may be, and that's to do with social interaction. So there's the other side to cities, which I brought up a moment ago, and that's the socioeconomic side. And that is, and if you ask about socioeconomic metrics, which did not exist on this planet until we started forming communities, so beginning only a few thousand years ago, things like wages or um, patents, you know, ideas or uh, restaurants. Or how fast you're running around. Pace of life. Yeah. So all these things... If you ask how do they scale, turns out it's the only place we really see it, basically, some minor exceptions. But biology is dominated by economies of scale, which we call sublinear scaling, by the way, because the, the three quarters is less than one 
to distinguish it from what we see in cities for the first time, which we call superlinear scaling, which is the bigger you are, instead of the less per capita, the more per capita. The bigger you are, the higher the wages per capita. The more sexy people there are per capita, more restaurants per capita, the greater the buzz of the city per capita, the more patents produced per capita, the more AIDS cases per capita, et cetera, et cetera. So it's becoming more efficient, but also more stressful or exciting. Yes, in the sense that more disease, including mental disease per capita, increases systematically, all to the same degree. What is amazing, all these different metrics, which superficially seem to be very different, number of patents connected to number of AIDS cases, they scale in the same way, all scale to the same degree, 15%. You get a 15% add additional value added every time you double. And what is amazing, these scaling laws, which I've done in terms of the United States, are true across the globe. They're the same in Japan, China, Colombia, Chile, Germany, Portugal, you name it, everywhere, the same kind of scaling laws, which again begs the question, where in the hell did these come from? Yeah. I mean, it's almost as if in about 1790, after the American Revolution and the French Revolution, and there was all this excitement, there, there was a big Congress called in Paris, and all the nations of the world got together, and uh, people said, well, look, uh, all these marvelous things are happening, and we've got the Industrial Revolution is coming, and we're going to have to build all these cities because all these marvelous things are going to be happening. Here's the template for how you're supposed to build your urban system. Actually, it's funny because you, because you said it that way, it makes me think, well, if they actually did that, we wouldn't succeed at that because no, you can't get not. humans to coordinate so effectively. So it must not be that. We're it terrible must- at that, yeah. as you know. I mean, that's what screwed up much of the things around us. It turns out that happened organically. It happened by some natural process in the same way that we had the evolution of all the animals and plants. So it's like when I walk down the streets of New York or when some real estate developer walks down the streets and he says, you know, that building, it's too small now that the other buildings around here are taller. There's a lot of value in that. I'm going to buy that building and and put up a high rise. They're responding to the same natural pressures. Exactly. That is their doing. They are like the ants. You know, they don't realize what they're doing is building on this. So there's this hidden, there's this hidden, you know, you walk around the city. Actually, you know, in the the fifth discipline, one of the things, a book where I learned a lot about, where I first had my introduction to systems thinking, and it said, when you feel compelled to do something, that's a sign that you're in a system. Uh And Interesting. (laughs) Yes. And so you said it's invisible, but it's actually, we're acting on these motivations. We're not consciously aware of it. But when someone says, you know, we should put some solar schools up, they're acting on a, a compulsion that's a system that's operating on them. Yes. It's like the invisible hand, so to speak. Yeah. And no, it's kind of remarkable. And it does happen by some natural process. And the question is, what is dry, you know, what is that process? And that's what I'm going to talk about briefly. Yeah. Well, also, can we resist that process if it's taking us a place we don't want to go? Yes. That's the question I I think we have to end up with in terms of sustainability. And this is what physicists bring to the table. I hope so. If these laws are out there and we don't know about them, but we still can't, but they still operate on us. If there's nothing we can do about it, I guess it might not matter at all. But if there's something we can do about it, it might be the most important thing to- Exactly. So what is the mechanism that's producing this? Okay, that's the question. And the idea is the mechanism that is producing this our social networks is the dynamics, organization, and structure of our human social networks. 
and uh, as distinct from biology or the infrastructure of cities, which are governed by economies of scale, physical networks, the human social networks, what do they transmit? They're not transmitting energy. They're transmitting what we're doing now, information. And as I just to repeat what I said earlier, the, the city is this machine for enhancing and facilitating those because we create places and institutions and mechanisms to have us interact. That's what we do with all our institutions, all our ways, our jobs, and so on, have us interacting. So Facebook and Twitter are inevitable consequences of cities getting bigger and bigger. Once you get, once you have the infrastructure able to do that, once you've discovered the infrastructure to do that, you are carrying on the process that began with us 10,000 years ago, plow, yeah. primitive versions of city, which started this whole process. And the mechanism that distinguishes these networks from biological networks or infrastructural networks is they have built into them what we're doing now, a positive feedback mechanism. Mm-hmm. That is, even though it's you and I talking, it's not just you and I talking, you are connected to all kinds of people. You know, you're, you're going to be talking to other people, they're going to be talking to other people, but in general, there are loops in this. There are feedback loops. Usually, you know, I mean, certainly in, you know, in my life, you know, I talk to Joe and he talks to Fred and Fred talks to Anne and Anne talks to Charlotte and then they, Charlotte talks to me and then we talk. And there's this feedback uh-huh. and we build up ideas and most of those ideas are crap, obviously, or they're, you know, or they're ideas about, you know, who's going to win some football match or, or we're berating Trump or something, all of which sort of die somewhere. But that process, that very process of what the city is for, does every once in a while produce the theory of relativity or quantum mechanics or a Google or a Microsoft or a General Motors. That's what cities do. And so what cities do are create an environment to enhance social interactions by positive feedback mechanisms, which create ideas, innovate, and create wealth in order, part of a paradigm, to improve the quality and standard of living of the citizens. That's the paradigm we live in. And that is fantastic. It has been extraordinarily successful and has brought us to this marvelous point where we can do what we're doing now and many other almost miraculous things. And we'd all like that to continue with no unintended consequences. Yeah, because there's, what's it called, the the opiates, and there's obesity, and there's psychological... Sure. We pay a very heavy price in many ways. Of course, we always pay a heavy... You know, there's always been the dark side. So one of the things I often say is that with these scaling laws in terms of socioeconomic activity is the good, bad, and the ugly come along together as a package. Mm-hmm. So yeah, nature, the good, the bad, the ugly, that's our judgment. That's not nature doesn't pick. No, no, but it is our judgment in terms of, but we're allowed to do that when we're talking about society because society has built into it ideas of judge. You know, we do have, we do have moral codes and ethical codes and, mm-hmm. And I don't think we should shy away from making judgment that having more AIDS cases is bad or that having more crime is bad. I think we should make a judgment. It, I mean, there's huge gray areas, obviously, about being judgmental. But I'm willing to use good, bad, and ugly in this sense that, that if you increase the size of a city, you get more patents, you get higher wages, but you also get more crime, you get more disease, you get more environmental damage and more so stress. 
the big question All to is, the same degree. The big question is, can we adjust our social interactions in order to... to well, now, so one second. Before I want to, I would try to answer that because I think that's the fundamental question because one of the consequences of this superlinear behavior as distinct from the sublinear behavior is the following. When we talk, when we were finishing up the discussion of biology and sublinear, and I brought in that idea, I pointed out that that sublinear behavior leads to bounded growth. You know, we stop growing. Everything basically stops growing. And that is crucial. That has played a crucial role in the sustainability of life on this planet for two to three billion years. That phenomenon of stability that you spend for many organisms, most of its life is spent in a relatively stable state. And growth happens relatively quickly. When you come to socioeconomic systems driven by superlinear scaling, it turns out something completely different happens. It's the same mathematics, actually, but instead of having bounded growth, you have open-ended growth. So in one sense, that's great uh, in terms of the theory, because you now have a theory based on social networks that predicts superlinear behavior that we see, and that superlinear behavior leads to open-ended growth, which is also what we see. Not only what we see, we demand. I mean, it's a you know that is a fundamental of the economic system that we've developed since the discovery of entrepreneurship and capitalism with the beginnings of the industrial revolution two hundred years ago. That it rests on perpetual growth. That the idea that, that we can have this open-ended growth and so on. Now, this theory has built into it not the theory, but the in- consequences of it have built into it a fatal flaw for the system. And that fatal flaw is that the system is destined to collapse in some finite time. And that's called mathematically a finite time singularity. And it says within some finite time, meaning it could be one year, five years, 10 years, 100 years, this system has to collapse. That's it. For internal reasons, not running out of resources, not because no, of uh, overheating. No, just they would have to. It would, it, you, because if you want to use the word resources, it would be that you have to have infinite resources in some finite time. And that's impossible. So, Is this related to why organisms die? No. no okay, so no, unrelated. No, okay. that's not related. So, but that's, and the caveat to that statement is that if nothing changes, okay, big if. Now, of course, so the way out of this dilemma is that you change something, and that change we call innovation. We have to make a major innovation, which effectively resets the clock. So you may have, uh, let's take something very recent. We, uh, a major innovation was the discovery of computers, especially laptops. Mm-hmm. That reset the clock. Everything changed when we did that basically. But then, you know, 15, 20 years later, within 15, 20 years, we discovered IT, which now completely dominates, and that reset the clock. And if we go way back, we discovered iron, and then we discovered bronze, and then we discovered coal. So each one of these stops as you approach the singularity, you sort of reset the clock, and you have new boundary conditions, using the phrase you used earlier, and we can start over again. So you have this marvelous possibility that... Um, if you can innovate, you can continue to grow, and you can innovate yourself out of it and continue growth. That's basically the dictum of uh, economists, and by extension to politicians and policymakers. That's why we need you know, we need to keep innovating in order to keep growing, and that's what this this mathematics predicts, and that's great. But it has also built into it another fatal flaw, and I think that's going to be when you're talking the wheel and fire and the plow. It's like 
10,000 years between them. Yes, and exactly. from computer to IT, it's like no time at all. Yeah, exactly. So that's the big problem. So we're delaying this falling apart or this collapse, but less and less each time. Exactly. And- you have less and less time. So just to put it in perspective, the fantastic thing about biology and that sublinear scaling is that you have bounded growth and uh, also that the pace of life slows the bigger you are. Elephants live much longer than mice in a systematic, predictable way. Everything gets reversed with superlinear scaling in socioeconomic systems. Um, and it's the other way around, that instead of uh, as you get bigger, time slows down, time speeds up in a systematic way, so that just as you say, you have to innovate faster and faster. So it might have taken, you know, a thousand years ago to make a major paradigm shift, might have taken a hundred years to develop. That same thing now takes 10 to 15 years. So there's Mozarts all over the place because we're going to come up with Ina Klein and Knox music like all over the place now. <laughs> yes. So can we work on the system though? Can we transcend the system and change our social networks in a way? Can we Exactly. Choose? So that's the big issue. So the, I got very despondent when I sort of elaborated all of this. And I thought, my God, it seems like a, uh, you know, a kind of hopeless situation. It felt like I sort of painted myself into a corner that there's no way out. We're destined, doesn't matter how clever we are and how much innovation we do, you're going to have end up with a situation where you're going to have the equivalent to an IT revolution every six months, you know, which is completely nuts. So something more deep. Or you hit collapse. Or you collapse. And that's what the theory says. There's if you don't do that, you collapse. And the collapse, maybe you want the collapse, maybe you want to have it earlier so the collapse isn't so bad. Well, if you could do it smoothly, so that's the question. Can you do it in a way that you have a soft landing rather than the whole social fabric disintegrates? Yeah, so we want to either get it to level off and change something so that we just keep it where we are. So what I began to realize, I mean, what got me uh, into a kind of cynical mode was that, uh, you know, if you go back again to the theory, um, and this is, of course, speculative, but the origin of this is social networks. And they're kind of fixed in a way. They're not fixed, but they're sort of in our DNA. We emerge from being hunter-gatherers with this, and we have the same- Dunbar number and- The same brain that we had 100,000 years ago. And and much of our social dynamics is still controlled by that brain, which was determined by uh, being in small groups of people. And so how do we change that? And then I realized that the idea of major innovations or paradigm shifts, these major event changes that is keeping us buoyant, we have begun to identify the idea of innovation with a technological change. You know, that has almost become synonymous. When we think of the word innovation, we typically think of some major technological change, anything from the discovery of coal and steam engine to IT, or on a much lower level, you know, the uh, um, the invention of an iPhone or an iPad or whatever, you know. So, and then I began to realize that maybe what this is implying, that is in order to uh, make a, ma- a truly major change to get out of this inevitability, is that we have to think of innovation not as a technological change, but as a cultural change, as a major cultural change in the way we behave. And that's why I was very intrigued by your own decision and the kind of life you're trying to lead, Mm -hmm. which is to disconnect to some extent 
from the multiple infrastructures that we have around us that are marvelous, but part of this speeding up and whose consequences uh, in terms of its, uh, the, its unintended consequences and the entropy produced, therefore its pollution, are immense and are part of this thing that's going to kill us if we don't do something about it. And to be specific, you're talking about how my not flying, my avoiding packaged food. Exactly. Picking up trash, whatever. But, you know, these are small. I don't want to belittle what you're doing. Well, there's (laughs) a whole whole thing, but they're highly symbolic at an individual, you know, and extraordinarily important if we could do that at a collective level. So the slow foods movement. Yes. So these kinds of things. So we need some major shift, some extraordinary shift. And I started to get, and I thought about that, and I thought, well, all well and good. But, you know, for that to happen, it's probably going to take 20, 30, 50 years to get a whole society to change. Because at the moment, you know, if you ask, where does a lot of this come from in terms of our social interactions? A lot of it is the idea that all of us want more. We want sexier, bigger things, and, and we want more of everything. People might have one car, but they want two cars, and three cars. They not only want a home, but they want a second home. You know, and we all want that, and we all have that in us. And, uh, you know, that's been part of the driving force that's got us where we are. But it also has these horrible consequences. So the question is, can we get out of this, for want of a better word, greed kind of driving force? I would say craving. It's craving that we have. And I thought, well, maybe we can, but it might take 50 or 100 years, and that's too long. We can't do it. And that's where, from an earlier conversation, the seatbelts, the drinking and driving. Exactly. So the examples I had that I thought about were indeed, you know, in my own lifetime, the major changes that I thought would never happen are the use of seatbelts and people not smoking. You know, I grew up smoking. I started smoking at 14. A pack and a half a day. It's amazing I'm still alive. But I did stop at 21, fortunately. But, you know, everybody smoked. You know, you walk into a room, into my office, it would be walking into a glue. And to which I had a drinking and driving. And then in that earlier conversation, and then I was trying to remember who I spoke to about this because there's another one, which is unleaded gasoline. Yes. Another big shift. Another one that was yeah. poo pooed when it came out. All yeah. these things do. So, but they do take a long time. And these are small, I mean, they're very significant but small on the grand scale because we need a grand change, you know, something deep changing. And I thought that that was impossible. But then I had a tiny glimmer of hope and it's bizarre. And that glimmer of hope is Mr. Trump of all people. Uh And it's extraordinary because Mr. Trump has done something that I thought would be, and many of us thought would certainly be impossible. He has got, he has let loose Let's put it that way. That part of us, our sophisticated selves, that is still doesn't want to believe in science, doesn't really want to believe in facts, doesn't want to believe in rational thought, wants to be able to make things up as you go along. Well, I don't want to lose anyone here. Can we say that values other things over those things? They, they're looking at patriotism. Yeah, I mean, we all have that in us. You know, I don't deny, you know, I can be quite as irrational as the next person. That's for sure. It happens I earn my living and enjoy my life as a highly rational human being. But I recognize inside me there are all these other forces of work. And I think that's true of most of us. Well, I think the Trump voters aren't saying, let's be irrational. I think they're saying, let's be patriotic or something. Well, no, of course, they don't say that. But their actions 
belie those words in many ways, because I think that uh, Mr. Trump feels that he can make things up as he goes along, tell what are lies, or maybe that he doesn't even see them as lies because he does make them up to suit the, whatever the argument is. It's considered okay. And I thought, I naively thought that one of the great aspects of civilization, of modern civilization, meaning over the last 10,000 years, you know, whether it's, um, you know, we live in an area of Native American tribes. They too, of course, had all this. They had laws, they had codes, and they had a way of dealing with problems. And they believed in something uh, they felt was truth. They, you know, that you don't, and you're, and you suffer consequences when you disobey those. That's the rule of law. It's a fantastic invention. And somehow we've been able to skip through somehow we've in a couple of years in, a, in in less than a year in one year when he started running he was president and it happened and this is my point so I don't want to discuss the details of Trumpism it's just that he clearly signifies a discontinuity a cultural shift in a very short period of time of so it's possible something that you we had talked about this five years ago and said, let's, th- let's have a virtual reality. Let's have a thought experiment. Could we imagine a transition to a state in which, and then we would have a whole bunch of examples, and you say, yes, of course that's possible, but you know, it would take a whole series of events, and it probably would take 50 to 100 years, and maybe we would then regress to that state that we might have been in you know, 5,000 years ago, whatever, I don't make up numbers. But the point is that it happened in a year or so. Now, I decry Mr. Trump, but he has shown that to make significant cultural social change is possible in an incredibly short period of time. Now, I actually don't believe that it's going to survive. I don't think that it'll leave a residue, but there will be a reaction to that. But it may not. It may be that we've moved into a completely another phase, another trend, we've transitioned to another state. And that this will be, so to speak, the norm. And many of our politicians will behave this way and our leaders and so on. But now going back to my main point, my main point is that what we really need is some analog to an anti-Trump. I don't mean against Trump. I mean the opposite. That is someone... Putting the brakes on instead of putting the accelerator. Yeah, but I know this now that I'm going to sound a bit flaky, or if I haven't already, but I'm sounding particularly flaky. In terms of um, we believe in our loving our neighbor. (laughs) We believe in a collective behavior. We believe in caring. We believe that we don't need to have more of everything. We don't need to be the richest person, the most powerful. That it's, I can be satisfied with my one car or even two cars and my one home with four bedrooms and a kitchen and a whirlpool. I don't need more than that. That's enough. Enough is enough already. I earn you know, maybe I earn $250,000 a year or $50,000 a year, whatever. But I can, you know, I can live and be satisfied to a large extent. can't have everything, so I might as well enjoy what I have well, and, enjoy, and increase my joy. Yeah, so let's return to a state that once existed where people were much more content with what they had. Now, those state, I don't want to return to that state because people were horribly exploited. So the real question is, can we have, the benefits that have come from this extraordinary period of capitalism and 200 years of entrepreneurship and have those benefits and continue to develop ideas and innovate without growth and the consequences of that growth 
leading to destruction of our environment, including uh, climate change and uh, enormous social stresses that, it, that are incurred and uh, have, so to speak, our cake and eat it too. And I think the only way to do that is if there is some major cultural global shift. So it needs, I know this sounds really flaky, it needs sort of a charismatic figure like Donald Trump. Now I got to cut you off here because when Trump got elected is when I thought I got to do something because I don't think he's going to do for the environment what I think is important to do for the environment. I think it's going to go the opposite direction of what I think is important. And I thought, okay, I got to contribute here. I got to do something because that's, you know, I realized that big changes of this sort have not come from inside government. And I think of Mandela and Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Vaclav Havel. We need Mandela's, Gandhi's, Jesus Christ, whatever. We need Siddhartha. Yeah. We need these kind, someone of that charisma, stature, and on this more humanistic side. And so when I saw this happening, I said, if no one's doing like I thought Greenpeace, they're not doing it. Environmental defense, but that's not quite right. I thought no one's doing it. I'm going to do it. It sounds crazy, but you know, I, and long before I ever met you, I was saying, if we need a Mandela of the environment and there is no Mandela of the environment, I'll do the best that I can. And I keep telling, if you can do it better, if you think I sound crazy and you can do it better, do it. I'm more than happy for someone else to do it better than me. But until someone does it better, I'm going to do the best I can. Keep doing it because very few people are doing it. That's the sad thing. And the crazy thing is that what began as every single thing that I do begins as something environmental. And I don't do any of these things because of the environment anymore. I stopped getting packaged food because I don't want to produce litter. And now I do it because it's delicious. I stopped flying because I didn't want to pollute. But that's not why I don't fly. I don't fly because community and adventure and cuisine comes more when you develop the skills to create these things. And making this podcast began as something environmental, but it's not. It's about meeting people like you. And what I'm sharing is not let's protect the environment, although that is what leads to what I'm sharing is joy and love and harmony. And I don't want to sound flaky either, but that's what I'm getting. And I feel like I want to help people make that transition and have them not feel like you know, you talk to a lot of people about this stuff and they start feeling guilty and then they get protective and push back. But I felt once I realized that I felt guilty, the, I was, the guilt was coming because I was living against my values. Yeah. And the way for it to go away was to stop pushing it down, acknowledge it and say what's causing it. And it was living, behaving one way and believing another and then saying, well, changing the value hasn't worked. Let me change my behavior. And that has made everything That's better. fantastic. No, I understand that. I'm not good at that. I'm good at some of the things we've been talking about. And I'm even good at being, uh, you know, um, <laughs> you know, speculating as I was doing. I mean, the last 15 minutes has been quite speculative, but I think it's incredibly important to speculate about those, but even more important to act. Yes. And, uh, and I completely agree with that. And I'm, uh, I don't think I'm very good at that. I mean, I try to do some of these things, but I'm not a leader in that sense. I like to think of myself, I know it's a bit ivory towerish, as hopefully providing the tools and the framework and the way of thinking and to inform how we can proceed and why we should be doing these things and maybe even trying to formulate what the future may and could end up being, both in terms of its negative and in terms of its potential positive, the glorious world we could have versus the collapse of the entire fabric. <laughs> that was quite an understated, the collapse of the entire fabric. So, you know, the reason I had on the top of my, on the tip of my tongue, Schrodinger and Crick and Feynman was that 
once I started looking at leadership, I started looking at this was something that I think people looked at as like this woo-woo, you got to be born that way. You can't learn it. And my physics application to it was, yes, you can. Yeah, well, that's very good. That's The very- systems are, it's like really, it's not trivially simple, but there's plenty of ways to teach it that you can learn the skills of self-awareness and things like that and empathy and compassion and how to practice these things. And that's what I've been doing for the past several decades. And I'm really curious if the super linear property is causing this open-endedness, then there's, I presume somewhere where it's linear, where at least, it, and we, I guess we want to get to sublinear. Yeah, you want to get at least to uh, at least to linear. That's what you'd like to get to. So if we get, to, so, so we want to get that's even a little bit, even something actually technically, you could be just a little bit superlinear would be okay. Believe it or not. Let's give ourselves a little cushion. The question on my mind is: Does getting that exponent to where we want it to be does that tell us properties of the system that we want? Well, that's a very good system? question. I don't know the answer to that. That will give us a target. Yeah, so that's what I what I'd like to be thinking about, and I do think about, but I think we need much more focus of attention on things like that. But in particular, you know, my efforts have been much more trying to sharpen and formulate the conceptual framework and the way of delineating this within a scientific framework so that puts us in a position to begin to answer that question. And I invented this bizarre phrase that what we need is a grand unified theory of sustainability (laughs) where all these things come together. And that involves everybody. By the way, that's not not a physics thing, but it's everybody that has a stake in this uh, that is thinking about it, including politicians and policymakers and media people and, uh, you know, economists and biologists and so on. We all need to be involved, climate people and so on. And, uh, you know, I actually, in my, in, in, when I wrote a short article about this, I first suggested some years ago, it needs to be something that has the moral imperative of um, the uh, Manhattan Project and the atomic bomb or the excitement and the reach for an Apollo project only, you know, a hundred times bigger. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Because frankly, the prospect of what could happen to the planet, if we just blindly go on, makes, you know, something like the horrors of the Second World War small, because it could be the destruction of kind of socioeconomic life as we know it. So mm-hmm. it won't necessarily destroy human beings. It won't necessarily... It will be back to subsistence living. But it's bound, bound to, yes. It's, and of course, it will manifest itself if, as if we start moving into this phase, it will manifest itself as social unrest more and more. And, uh, you know, the worst thing that can happen is that degenerates into the use of hydrogen bombs and so on, yeah. in which case then life itself is threatened, I guess. Well, human life, I imagine bacteria, I mean, stuff under yeah, the oceans I mean, is still going to keep going. Human, I suspect life can sustain that, uh, can deal with that, but certainly human beings won't uh, survive that. If It depends, of course, on the scale of, of how many bombs you drop, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, but, you know, we can't, that, that, I mean, we've been speculating up to now. This is beyond speculation. Yeah, yeah. So let's leave that because it, it also runs the risk of people saying, yeah, well, Malthus said that too. And that leads to like this kind of jujitsu that has been played out many, many times. And- no, I hate that. I hate that. I'm not, I mean, when I talked at a symposium put on by uh, The Economist magazine journal, mm-hmm. And I was interviewed on in New York, actually. And I was interviewed on stage by the editor. And uh, it was extremely good, um, the whole thing. But he suddenly had a sort of moment of, I don't know what. And he said, my God, he said, 
are you trying to tell me that you're a Malthusian? <laughs> and he said it as if, are you trying to tell me that you're a, you know, a child predator? You know, I mean, it was like the worst insult that he could imagine. Yeah, economists love to talk. Yeah, they're like, well, he was wrong. Uh, I said, no, I'm not a Malthusian, actually, but I am a neo-Malthusian. <laughs> sure. That is that Malthus got it wrong. And I think, and so did uh, uh, the Club of Rome people, as did Ehrlich, Paul Ehrlich, and the population of They got it wrong because, and they were highly criticized for it, as was Malthus, by the way, originally, that uh, we will innovate. We continue to innovate. Every time you think it's, you know, we do. And that's what we do. We do innovate. We've done a fantastic job. You know, uh, the, Paul Ehrlich predicted that India would collapse within a few years, you know, by 1982 or something. And if we'd stayed on that same trajectory without innovation, we probably would have, but we kept innovating. So green revolution and so forth. We had this marvelous uh, revolution in, in agriculture and uh, so on. So this has happened and we've been unbelievably clever. But the thing that people have not appreciated, first of all, they haven't appreciated the mechanism underlying this, but most importantly, they haven't recognized that time is speeding up. It, we don't operate by the spinning of the Earth on its axis and the Earth going around the sun, which is on this watch of mine. We operate by our social interactions, which is getting faster and faster. We can't keep up. Most of so, us go nuts trying so to keep up just with our bloody email. So we do interact by time of the Earth going around the sun and so forth yes. in one way, but the development of our cities and our social structures that our operates on a economic life has now this other time scale associated with it which is not constant, like astronomical time, it's uh, accelerating time. So we have to act on our social structures. And that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> exactly. And you're doing it. You're doing it. I'm not. I do it at some pathetic small level. <laughs> One of the things that I also realized was that looking at what I'm doing from a systemic perspective, if I change, that really does nothing in terms of a billion people. If I get people around me to change, that's still nothing. If I get the entire United States to change, that's still not that much. 300 million people or so yes, is no. not that much compared to billions. And I realized I'm not at a leverage point of a system. No, and but that's why Trump gave me hope. Yeah, he's at a leverage point of a system. He really was one person. Look, no doubt watch the debates, even the Republican Party. He was trashed by all those people who now you know, love him and adore him. And their hypocrisy is unbounded. It's exactly. probably reached the maximal level that's allowed by, I don't know. The superlinear uh, sycophancy. I don't know what, it's unbounded. But, you know, and he was singular. He's a, in some ways, he was a genius. Can I say Nelson Mandela from prison negotiated with the presidents of the country yes. and got their jobs? Yes. No, so it's amazing. There are these people that, you know, have an extraordinary talent. And um, many of the ones we are aware of, many of the ones we admire, did it for what we define or perceive as the forces of good. And mostly the forces of good means that you improve the lot of everybody. I mean, that's sort of the, you know, the quality of life, making life more meaningful for people and so forth. And, uh, you know, there have been a few people with this kind of genius, this charisma, this way of tapping into some... And we're talking Siddhartha Gautama, we're talking Jesus, we're talking... Yeah, these people. Uh, yeah, Lao Tzu, yeah. But we're yeah. also talking of Hitler. Stalin, yeah. You know, there are such people. There are, and we do have many um, dictators and so on who behave very badly towards their populations that have come on from time to time, and more of them now than have been in the past. And Trump, he's certainly not a Hitler, but he has, uh, you know, he's a certain, he's an autocrat, 
and so on. But more than that, he simply, his values and his sense of what is right and wrong seem to be at odds with what we defined in, at least I will only speak of Western culture, and certainly of the ideals of what have made America a great country. You know, the belief we, I mean, after all, America from the very beginning believed in science. We had one of the great Americans, for all maybe his faults, was believed, promoted science. Like, I mean, Thomas Jefferson was fantastic. Oh, I thought you were going to say Ben Franklin. Yeah. But Ben Franklin wasn't a president. But he was, you know, but there were, that was sort of in the, the beginnings of this country. But it's been part of Western culture. This is fascinating. And this has given me direction and motivation. The one big thing is I realize that I'm not a leverage point of a system. I don't know anyone who is, but there are people who are at leverage points of the system. Obama, uh, Jay-Z, you know, yeah. LeBron James and Oprah. Yes. And that's why I'm motivated to- like, Oprah, I had hoped, I, I actually met Oprah a couple of times and I've spent time with her and I don't have access to her anymore, but I've been disappointed because I think she had the potential for galvanizing, actually. I think she still does, just not as a politician. Not as a politician. That was important. That was crucially important. Not as a politician. And I thought that was actually important. And ultimately, we need politicians. To follow, but not to lead. Politicians are rarely rarely leaders in this area. I mean, Obama, before he became president, was fantastic. But he wasn't able to cash in on his leverage, so to speak. It got us to the moon. The moonshot was definitely a politician playing a major role in that. Oh, you mean the uh, the Apollo? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Kennedy. There was a man with great charisma who galvanized the country behind something that probably would not have happened. Or, I hate to say this, this is weird. I would say that uh, Lyndon Johnson, in terms of civil rights, again, despite all his faults, at least within this dimension. The, so we, the, there are people like that. But I must say, one of the things I don't understand is how few of those in the last 10, 20 years have popped out of the vacuum. Yeah. It, yeah. After Robert Kennedy and MLK. We don't have any. And Trump is one of those has popped out of the vacuum. It turned out he popped out with the wrong sign. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Now that's physics talk. Yeah. What happened in the, you know, whoever controls the universe got the sign wrong in his calculation. So now we have to break here. Should we continue another one? I, if you want to, I'm happy. It's fun talking with you and brainstorming. So let's pick up the next one here. Next week is better for me. Can you wait to next week? Yes, I could do the same time next week. Yes, that I think will be okay. At the same time, then I'll send you a calendar invitation after... Send me your, uh, what you've done before, that works. Well, thank you very much, but we'll pick up right here next time. I find it fascinating and incredibly motivational that he came to the same conclusions of what was necessary to resolve the same problems that I did. If you listen this far, you probably find the science perspective of nature as beautiful as I do especially the physics perspective, which looks at things at the most fundamental level. I want to review overall the arc of what Jeffrey described. Data shows patterns in biology among species, that there's predictable scaling, and that we can understand why things scale the way they do. When we understand that, we can apply that to cities and to human species growth. And that data from other places predicts behavior that we're seeing, environmental behavior that we're seeing of how our species is affecting our world. And it also suggests a way out. Very difficult, but possible leading to the value of leadership and systems change. People often conflate physics with engineering and technology. I understand the connection, but this science is different than engineering or technology. It's understanding things at the most basic level. I'm not sure how many people can see the connection between a scaling law or even just a line on a graph 
and what to do today and tomorrow. But to me, it's abundantly clear and it motivates me tremendously. And I look forward to my second conversation with Jeffrey. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.